Today's scripture reading is from Colossians 1, 22 to 27. But now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. If you continue in your faith, established and firm, not moved from the hope held out in the gospel, this is the gospel that you heard and that has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven and of which I, Paul, have become a servant. Now I rejoice in what was suffered for you, and I fill up in my flesh what is lacking in regard to Christ's affliction for the sake of his body, which is the church. I have become its servant by the commission of God, by the commission God gave me to present to you the word of God in its fullness, the mystery that has been kept hidden for ages and generations, but is now disclosed to the saints. To them, God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Okay, nice to see everyone in person and uh, virtually. Um, we've been uh, slow walking our way through the first chapter of Colossians uh, in the month of January. Um, here's kind of where we've been thus far. Uh, we started with uh, spiritual signatures, right? Uh, the signature greetings which expressed key characteristics of the author, the audience, and the story of the gospel. Uh, next we considered some reasons why Paul encourages us to uh, fervent and regular prayer, both to please God uh, and to help us experience uh, our own our spiritual joy and pleasure. And then last week's message was on um, the supremacy or firstness, right? The firstness of Jesus. We considered the primacy he holds in time, uh, Eminence, right? He's preeminent, and uh, closeness. Right? How, through his death, he reconciled us. He overcame the barrier between us and God. Right? He sacrificed his life, even though we were enemies uh, to God. Today, my title is full-bodied, full-bodied. Okay, so from the reading. I, th I think you noticed Paul's references uh, to the body. He mentions it several times, and uh, that he in our verses. So I'm gonna organize it like this. Right, first, uh, Christ's physical body. Okay, what does Paul mean by that? What, why does he mention that in this context? The physical body. Of Jesus, and then uh, in verse twenty-four, Paul says, "My flesh." So he begins to talk about his own body. Right? That's what he's referring to: his own physical body, his corporeal body. And then we kind of shift to the corporate picture. So his body, Christ's body, which is the church. Right? We we are all familiar with that metaphor: uh, the body of Christ. Uh, being uh, the church. So 
Um, we're going to kind of go through these uh, usages and try to point out some interesting parts and maybe tie them together. Different significances and nuances that I hope to explore. I added the, t the, the term full, right, full, full-bodied uh, to my title. Um, I think it, when you use that term, like something is full-bodied, it, it's talking about a, like a certain strength or robustness, like a full-bodied wine, a full-bodied coffee. You might have heard that. So I was thinking, yeah, I want us to have a full or deeper understanding of uh, Paul's um, usage of body, um, as well as our spiritual experience, right? Becoming more fuller, yeah, deeper, richer, more robust, uh, or at least our understanding uh, of it. Okay, so first, Christ's physical body. Uh, since we often mention uh, and uh, reflect upon the atoning death of Christ on the cross for our transgressions, I won't spend too much time uh, on this point uh, today. Um, it's a biblical fact that uh, Jesus actually, uh, Jesus' actual human body, right? His body was crucified. It was a bloody, arguably gory scene. Jesus did not swoon or faint or pretend to be dead, right? He was not in a coma. Um, he was completely dead. His breath terminated. All of his bodily functions fully halted. He really died, really died. His body was wrapped in burial cloths and laid in a tomb. And of course, we hold to a yeah, full bodily resurrection, right? Just as he died in the body, through the body, he rose back to life. That's the power of the resurrection, or at least part of the power of the resurrection. The actual death of Jesus in body is important for our understanding of his uh, sacrificial atonement. Uh, you can see Paul in Paul uh, undertones of the Old Testament sacrificial system, right? Uh, the death of the sacrifice, the physical death, represented the extreme cost that was required for forgiveness. Uh, Paul says in 22b that Christ presented us to God without blemish and free from accusation. Yeah, this is sacrificial terminology relating to the quality right, of the sacrificial animal. So, uh, in terms of sacrifice, in terms of atonement, in terms of forgiveness, it was important that Jesus' physical body, right, undergo death. Um, at the uh, recent pastor's prayer summit that I attended this past week, um, you know, we always observe the Lord's Supper together. It's kind of nice, uh, interdenominational and all that. Um, the officiant who presided over the, the communion this year made an interesting point. Um, he said, when Jesus took the bread, he gave thanks and then broke it, right? That's what the Bible says, and distributed it to the disciples to partake in. Yet in the actual crucifixion, uh, it's clear that Jesus suffered no breaking 
at least of his bones. Right? And that's one of the messianic prophecies right, that we find in Psalms, that not one of his bones were, were broken, that was fulfilled. Jesus was certainly punctured and pierced numerous places, numerous ways, but he suffered no bone breaks. Um, so I was really like, well, that's really interesting, right? That's like, I don't really think about that. And the presider, however, didn't like explain why. I was going, okay, I'm on the edge of my seat. And he didn't really provide further explanation. So I decided to research it or read it a little more at home. And um, I think no bones were broken, right? That was there not only to fulfill the prophecy, but uh, to kind of establish or confirm that Jesus was our Passover lamb. Our Passover lamb. If you recall, uh, in the Exodus narrative, the tenth and final plague was a plague on the firstborn, where the angel of death was went through every household in, in that area. And if there was a, a sacrifice, sacrificed lamb's blood uh, brushed on the doorpost, the angel would pass over and spare the firstborn. But for all the Egyptian households that had no blood, um, death came, right? Uh, the firstborn were struck down. Uh, so in that passage, Moses commands the Israelites uh, to eat the Passover meal, which included the sacrificial lamb, where the blood came from. But specifically, they were not to break any of the Passover lamb's bones, right? And there you find like no one's really sure why that's the case. One uh, theory is that they were eating in haste. And so they had to just kind of boil the lamb and eat it, right? Because uh, they were about to ex make an exodus from Egypt. That's one theory. I, another theory, someone said that when a lamb has a, a sacrifice has a broken bone, it's blemished. It's unfit. It's imperfect, right? And so it couldn't serve as the sacrifice, right? So either way, I think uh, that um, it's an amazing symbolism, at least to me, that Jesus is indeed our sacrificial atonement. His physical body was slain just like the Passover lamb was slain, right? The blood of Jesus causes God's judgment to pass over us, that we can be beloved, right? That we can be uh, reconciled with God. Right? Of course, the belovedness, right, as, as Lucy prayed, is God's regardless of our response. But reconciliation, right, an eternal relationship with him is uh, through, right, the forgiveness that we hopefully freely will receive. Our next point uh, about full-bodiedness comes from verse 24, where Paul says this, okay, and I want to leave this up for a while. I fill up in my flesh what is still lacking in regard to Christ's afflictions. Uh, this is a curious verse which, which has baffled many a commentator, right? Paul is clearly talking about his own body when he writes my flesh. And yet he refers to the afflictions of Christ. But then there is, is there something lacking in Jesus' sufferings? How should we interpret this? I don't believe it would make any sense uh, to say that Christ's sufferings were somehow not sufficient. You know, somehow Paul had to compensate for their deficiency 
that Paul's suffering was necessary to complete atonal suffering. Uh, indeed, right, we know that Jesus cries out, it is finished, right, when uh, his cruciform suffering was completed. And, you know, a uh, basic tenet of our faith is that Christ's atonement is perfect and complete. In fact, just a few verses prior in Colossians 1, Paul says he's been very clear that the supremacy of Christ includes the reconciliation of all things in heaven and on, our, on earth. So the total and final achievement of reconciliation means that there is no lack in the work of Christ, let alone his sufferings. I think a better way to understand this verse is to connect it back to Paul's sufferings, right? Hence, my flesh. And the reason that he calls it Christ's afflictions is because they are incurred uh, for the sake of Christ. Uh, like how Jesus said in the Beatitudes, blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. So suffering in the name of Jesus, but suffering in my own flesh, right? Is I think what Paul's trying to say. I hope you follow that. Uh, another way to kind of, I think, helpfully view this expression to me is to see a real connection between our sufferings for Christ and somehow the sufferings that he knows, that he experiences as we suffer, right? So when Jesus appeared to Saul on the road to Damascus, right before he became Paul, Jesus says to Saul, 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 why do you persecute me? Why are you making me suffer, right? Paul wasn't making Jesus directly suffer. He didn't even know Jesus, who Jesus was or where Jesus was or, or anything. Saul was persecuting the followers of Christ, but Jesus took it personally. Right? So they were, in a sense, the sufferings of the church folk, right? the believers, but it somehow right, Jesus experienced it or felt it uh, as well. Right? More on this later, but indeed, uh, we are the body. We are his body, the body of Christ. Right? And just as in our bodies, when one part hurts, the whole part, the whole body hurts, the head hurts, right? Um, in that sense, I think we can say that, uh, or, or Paul can say that his afflictions are also Christ's uh, afflictions. Okay, you guys got that? Yeah. So that's what I think this verse is saying, that Paul is uh, not equating but he's kind of connecting, right, Christ's sufferings to his own and his own uh, to uh, Christ, which I find rather nonplussing or disturbing, uh, disconcerting. Paul is saying something that suffering, that, that he's saying that suffering is actually part and parcel of his spiritual journey, and I think the argument is for everyone's spiritual journey in some form. Paul is not only familiar with hardships and sufferings, he seems to anticipate them. Might we say he welcomes them? Right? He says many places, like, consider it pure joy, right? Be thankful when you go through sufferings and tribulations and hardships. Even in verse 24, he talks about he rejoices in what was suffered for you. Right? meaning his own sufferings 
included in that on behalf of the Colossians. Is Paul obsessed with martyrdom, martyr, martyrdom glory? Is he a glutton for punishment and pain? Uh, surely not. No. Uh, in fact, uh, Paul's spiritual journey from its inception envisioned much suffering. Right? At his conversion, God sent his servant Ananias to grant restored sight to Paul's eyes. Right? Uh, the, the verse in Acts 9 goes, Go, this man is my chosen instrument to carry my name before the Gentiles and their kings and before the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. So kind of built into Paul's call was the reality of much suffering. And Paul never shied away from the full-bodied persecution that he had to undergo to faithfully transmit the gospel. Uh, the Pauline uh, epistolary corpus, as well as the narratives of Paul, uh, Paul's missionary endeavors, they're riddled with suffering and persecution. But he takes it one step further to Paul, knowing Christ, following Christ, right, um, included fellowship with Christ's sufferings. And that's mind-blowing. That's disturbing. That he would uh, find that his own spiritual progress and growth and imitation of Christ, it entailed yeah, suffering. Knowing Christ meant solidarity in some way to Christ's sufferings. The fullness of spiritual maturity for Paul meant greater suffering of which hardship in his physical flesh was in view. So Philippians 3, famous passage, I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death and so somehow to attain to the resurrection from the dead. That's how intensely Paul wanted to imitate Christ. Paul saw suffering in his flesh as a means of a robust following of Christ. Ironically, right, it is argued that this is kind of, he's using this to kind of gently correct the Colossians because there were some people in, apparently in the Colossian church that were talking about something lacking Something missing in either Paul's ministry or Paul's teaching or Paul's, even Paul's person. If you keep reading in Colossians, you'll see allusions to fullness, completeness, superiority. It's like they're saying Paul's missing something, so let, let me you know, teach you what you're missing. And so Paul is kind of doctrinally correcting them. Yeah. These other teachings, these other sentiments, what they were likely doing was, you know, kind of talking up greater shows of strength, um, more manifestations of power, secret knowledge, super apostleship, what have you, right? The kinds of things that you know, Paul had to fight against uh, in, in most of his churches. In stride, Paul says this, well, you're right, there is something lacking 
in my service to Christ. I still have to fill up in my flesh more afflictions, more sufferings, more hardships. That's what's missing. You see how he kind of turns the power kind of equation on his head. He's saying Jesus certainly is powerful. He is grand. He is glorious. But the key to that, the pathway to that, is not worldly glory and success and amazing abilities. It's weakness and humility and brokenness and suffering. Man, oh man, right? Or woman, oh woman. <laughs> this is uh, uh, really kind of, uh, it's hard, right? But it's also refreshing. It's also um, so Christ-like, I believe. Uh, finally, the third uh, body reference, also from verse 24, uh, says his body, which is the church. Yeah, it's, some of it is a continuation of the suffering motif. Paul uh, is talking about the beneficiary of his suffering being the body of Christ. That Paul is suffering for the sake of, right, to the benefit of, for the outcome that it will somehow kind of help the church, that the well-being of the church is why he's suffering. It's not random. It's not um, kind of a culpable suffering, right? It's not because he's done something wrong. But by doing so, just like as Jesus suffered, right? Jesus' physical death birthed the church. Paul's dying, his suffering, would uh, be for the purpose of strengthening the church. Right? Um, that's how the church, at least in the New Testament, grows. Um, the suffering, the sacrifice, the giving of themselves by the um, members of the church, by the people of the church, this has led to yeah, the continuation, the health of right, and the growth um, of the church. Yeah, that's true throughout Christian history. Right? This principle has obtained. There's a famous quote from an early church father, Tertullian. He says, the blood of the martyrs is a seed of the church. The blood of the martyrs is a seed of the church. Yeah, kind of dark. Right? Kind of like, ooh, let's not talk about that too much. But it holds true, right? Without that kind of sacrifice, with that kind, kind of, uh, of commitment, right? The church would not have made it this I was saying that uh, we need both the Holy Spirit to move in us and us to move in response uh, to the Holy Spirit. Yeah. 
Now, I hope none of us ever have to make the ultimate sacrifice, but at least some, uh, we have to give something in order to see the body of Christ grow. Yeah, unless we are willing to sow of ourselves, our time, our resources, our energies, there will, no be, there will not, we will not be able to reap a harvest of souls or a harvest of relationships or a harvest of God's glory. You know, sometimes um, I feel like we don't even need to talk about sacrifice, and, you know, suffering. Um, we don't need to bring special gifts or huge uh, contributions. Um, sometimes I think just showing up, these days just showing up, your presence, um, your, your willingness, uh, just having our bodies here, <laughs> we're talking about bodies, right? Uh, that's a great encouragement. Um, you know, I know the pandemic has hampered our ability to get together, our ability to uh, be in, uh, around each other, right? And certainly we have to accept the realities of that, but um, at least uh, when there is that opportunity um, to, to push ourselves, uh, to dedicate ourselves, uh, to, to give, right, to the work of the Lord, I think that's, that's something that we, um, we can ask of ourselves and ask uh, of each other. Um, there's this uh, Korean phrase that uh, I, I heard growing up about, I won't say the phrase, but I'll try to do the translations. Like if you are uh, facing like a, a, a big problem or kind of a, like a large task ahead of you and you don't have the skills or the money or whatever to overcome it, the phrase is something like, you know, um, Throw your body into it. At least you have your body. Just push at it, right? I looked up Google Translate, and they say, hit it with your body. <laughs> hit it with your body. You know, maybe you, you get that. Kind of like, at least you can put your body into something, right? Uh, even if <laughs> all the other things are, you have nothing much else to offer, you at least got, have, your, have your body uh, for it. And, and since we're talking about um, this kind of full-bodiedness, right? Yeah, I think embodiment, right? Presence, um, giving of what you have control over, uh, those can have like enormous benefits, I think. Let's not take that for granted. You know, uh, for all this, uh, you know, digital advance and all this, um, kind of progress we've seen and, and all the cool stuff. Um, I just, I, I, I get fixated on the incarnation, right? That of all the ways that uh, Jesus, uh, God could have communicated to us, right? He incarnated, incarnated has become flesh, right? He enfleshed himself in a human body to be with others, right? To be with his people, to show them who the Father was. Okay, um, so I think we've talked a lot already about suffering and all that, Jesus and Paul. 
So I'm going to leave it at that. But I want to close with uh, kind of what I found quite challenging as well in this passage. And that's to appreciate how highly Paul values this body of Christ. Right? Uh, it's not just kind of like a nice, neat picture or metaphor. It's, uh, there's something profound uh, about uh, the body of Christ. And he uses this kind of mystery language. Right? He says uh, to him, um, there's been a great mystery that has been hidden for ages and generations. And now it's revealed in our time. Right? Like, so there's a big buildup, right? And now the mystery is open to all. It's knowable. Drum roll, please. <laughs> right? da, 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 da. God's answer, God's mystery revealed is tada the church. You know, and if you're like me, <laughs> uh, I think you're, you would go, even when you read this passage, it's like, he's going, what's this, what's this? And like, oh, it's the church. It's, you know, Christ in you, the hope of glory. Oh, I knew that. That doesn't seem that big of a deal, right? We, we, we claim to live in a pluralistic society. So, hey, what's wrong with, you know, pe yeah, people should get together. People should blah, 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 blah. But we don't, I think, appreciate how radical this was for Paul to say that. To say that uh, God's reconciliation of all things, it especially, of course, it's most importantly or priority, it's between us and God, we're reconciled to God. But that's not the end, right? You know, love is not only vertical, it's horizontal. Right? Love God, love your neighbor, love one another, all that. So in order, I think, for Jesus or Paul here to claim that Jesus reconciled all things, there must be a solution to human conflict, right? And if you've heard me speak on it before, I think that human conflict is unfortunately yeah, the driver of human history. Right? It's one long, terrible tale of conflict. Right? Starting from the fall of humanity, right? alienation between God and Adam, Adam and Eve, Adam and the ground, Adam and himself, you see conflict, right? You see separation. And then you get Cain and Abel, you get the first murder. And then after that, right, you just get wars and oppression and competition. And you know, these things, they've defined epochs. Um, that's what you see in every gesture. That's what everyone is trying to figure out. That's what everyone is trying to solve. And, and what, what is Christ's contribution to that? Right? What is Jesus' answer? Believe it or not, it's the church. Right? These small, weak enclaves of forgiven sinners getting together and saying, hey, you love God, I love God. You're forgiven, I'm forgiven. You're different, that's okay. I want to love you as Christ loved me, and I want you to love me as Christ loved you. 
that almost simplistic, almost like absurd idea that because of what Jesus has done for us in our lives, we can have a new community. We can have a new uh, relationship, right? Jews and Gentiles were mortal enemies. And the fact that um, in the church, they could be real uh, co-humans. They could be equal. They could love one another, right? The original chosen people of God and the people that were set aside, were rejected, were considered inhuman, that there could be uh, a, a closeness, um, a oneness. That, that's, that's pretty earth-shattering, considering the entire Old Testament and how it was understood uh, for centuries. Reconciliation. Um, peace, right? That, that, that doesn't occur in corporate boardrooms or G20 economic summits. It doesn't occur in the uh, sociology books. Right? It doesn't occur even in homes, in the bedroom, right? It uh, can occur, believe it or not, again, uh, in the church. And that's that's the mystery, right? And that's still a mystery to me, how that could be, right? That somehow, um, not through technological advancements or education or economics, again, um, that's not God's answer. His answer is uh, through a bond shared in Christ, right? through worship, through heart-to-heart -heart conversations, through selfless service for others. Again, in small gatherings, in large churches, whatever, suffering, uh, hardships, and sorrows uh, together. Right? In the fullness of the body, we have the revelation of revelations. Okay, that's it. That's my three kind of references that I wanted uh, to make. But I want to close uh, or have us in prayer about, you know, where is that fullness, that full-bodiedness, right? Either in your personal experience, right? Um, maybe we need to reflect on Jesus' death once again, all that he did for us. Or in your walk with the Lord, maybe you've been, maybe I've been, kind of avoiding suffering. And that area is kind of empty. It's uh, barren in terms of fruitfulness, in terms of fellowship of sharings and the sufferings of Christ. There is no my flesh involved. There is no sacrifice. And then, you know, as a corporate body, you know, where is the love? Where is this? mysterious unraveling of conflict, this miraculous work of unity. What's, what's lacking, what's missing? Let's pray.
Heavenly Father, uh, we confess that uh, talking about suffering is not that pleasant or fun. Uh, going through it is even worse. Uh, and yet, um, we cannot escape um, the sacrifice of Jesus' body uh, for our salvation. And we cannot uh, ignore um, the real uh, surrender that many people before us have given so that life could continue uh, in the church. Um, so we ask for um, a renewed understanding, uh, more fuller appreciation and commitment uh, to uh, be uh, a body of Christ, uh, which loves, which gives, uh, which um, proclaims the uh, the mystery of of the church uh, to a, a needy world. Uh, please give us uh, strength, insight. Uh, uh, give us. Uh, your leadership. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.